0: Great to be with you guys uh, this morning. My name is Jay Francor, and uh, I have the opportunity to pastor uh, our church community and family. And uh, it's a great privilege that I have. And I also have the privilege of uh, getting to develop and and see other people grow to use their gifts. And and this morning is one of the opportunities that we have uh, to see someone grow and and develop in in their gifting, and uh, not just for their own benefit, but for the benefit of our body together. If you remember uh, back the first Sunday of the year, we celebrated our five-year anniversary as a church, and one of the things that I said about our, our next five years is that we, we want to increasingly operate out of three values that we're going to hold in tension, and, and those values are generosity, discipleship, and multiplication. And so uh, every time that we have someone uh, come and kind of use their gifts, it's an opportunity to grow in those three areas. Uh, we we want to be generous people who, who live out of the generosity that we've been given in Christ and realizing that God has given all of his family gifts to be used for the sake of the family. And so when someone says, hey, I want to be used uh, by God to, to grow and to develop our, our family and to teach and to preach, it's an opportunity to see that generosity take root in our family. But it's also an opportunity to see discipleship happen. Discipleship is just growing to maturity in Christ. And uh, every time someone steps forward to do that, it's an opportunity for them as well as for us to mature and hear from a different perspective. And then last, multiplication. We want to multiply the number of people that are equipped so that God could multiply our impact in the community. And uh, our mission as a church is to see uh, communities grow and multiply uh, that impact our, our world here in South Jersey and in Haiti. And the best way to start to do that is to develop people in their gifting, and so uh, we're doing that this morning. And I'm really thankful for that. My friend David Meadows is uh, is come, and you probably know Dave. And if you don't, he'll he'll introduce himself in a second. Um, but uh, last time he was up here, we pre- we team teach together, and uh, this morning he's uh, he's taking it on on solo. This is the first time. Actually, uh, I'm not. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Good reminder. Thank you. Um, But uh, um, this is uh, his first time transitioning into into this uh, particular format. So I'm thankful for that, and uh, I'll let him say a little bit more. But I'd love to pray for him just as he uh, spends the next few minutes teaching us. So, Father, would you come and anoint Dave by your spirit? Would you come and fill him with your presence? Uh, Let him uh, speak your words in in a way that is... uh, full of your truth but also full of your grace and especially as we think about uh, being people that are full of kindness and mercy uh, may you come and uh, make him a man of kindness and mercy and uh, do the same work in us by your spirit we need you holy spirit to come and do that work in us and so we we trust in you this morning we pray in christ's name
1: amen amen good morning again thank you jay this morning we are continuing our series called Same Spirit, God in Christ and Christ in Us. The theme of our, of our series has been the work of the Holy Spirit and the role of the Holy Spirit in the public life and ministry of Jesus Christ. Now, when Jesus was baptized, all four of the Gospels tell us that the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove and rested upon him. John's Gospel even tells us that the Spirit remained on him. And if you look in the fourth chapter of the Gospel of Luke, the chapter opens with the phrase, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit. And then following his temptation, he returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. So everything that Jesus did in his public life and ministry, he did through the power of the Holy Spirit instead of his own power. Not that he didn't have the power because he still was Emmanuel, God with us. The word made flesh. But as Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, he emptied himself. Now, theologians have debated for centuries exactly what this means, his self-emptying. I think Eugene Peterson pretty well nailed it in his paraphrase, the message, when he says says that he gave up the right, I'm sorry, Peterson says that he set aside the privileges of deity. He was still God, but he gave up the right to use his Godhead, gave up the right to use his power as God, and everything that he did in his public life and ministry, he did through the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, why is this important? Because the Holy Spirit that empowered Jesus Christ for his public life and ministry is that same spirit hence the title of our series, is the same spirit that empowers us to live the Christian life. It empowers us to live the Christian life to the glory of God. We have been... Now, the way we've been working through this series, we have been surveying the fruit of the spirit that Paul laid out in Galatians chapter 5. And we've, we've been looking at how each aspect of the fruit of the spirit was manifested in the public life and ministry of Jesus through various episodes in the Gospel of Luke. And we've basically been looking to see how each aspect of the Spirit was highlighted in Jesus' life and manifested, and how the Spirit worked through him. Today we come to kindness. Paul says, The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. Now, in today's culture, and we hear a lot about doing random acts of kindness. It's almost become sort of a catchphrase to do random acts of kindness. But exactly what do we mean when we talk about doing random acts of kindness? I'd like to get some feedback from you on this. What would be some examples of random acts of kindness? Okay, helping someone carry the groceries to their car. Thank you, Glenn. Andrew, you had your hand up? Giving someone a gift? Okay, yeah. Yes, sir. Our, um, our, go ahead, Lorraine. Sorry. <laughs> okay. All right. Paying for the drink behi- for someone behind you in a wah Yes, Glenn. Good one. Helping people move. feeding the homeless, okay. Yes, James, exactly, yes, and and I'm going to talk a little bit more about that in just a moment. These are all excellent examples. Now, a few years ago, I never really got into TV talk shows, but for those of you who did, you might recall that a few years ago, when Oprah Winfrey still had her TV talk show, from time to time, she would run an episode devoted to the theme of doing random acts of kindness. And she, she would demonstrate this by showing film clips of herself going around doing a lot of the same things that you guys have just mentioned. You know, like helping someone carry their groceries to the car. I know one of the things she would do if she was driving on the expressway when she came up to the toll booth, she would pay her toll, and then she would also pay the toll for the car behind her. Things like that. Kind of makes me hope she's ahead of me the next time I'm going out to see my sister in Ohio when I come up to that <laughs> toll booth on the uh, PA Turnpike. You know, to go from, I think it's Valley Forge to New Stanton now. It's like 28 bucks or something like that. So, yeah, she's more than welcome to pay my toll if she wants. But as I, would, as I would watch this, n- and you know, I really don't want to seem cynical and I don't want to sound like I'm bashing Oprah, but as I would be watching this, I couldn't help but thinking in the back of my mind, the fact that she had a television camera crew following her around, filming her acts of kindness, I thought called into question the randomness of them. because anything random, by definition, has no predetermined plan, purpose, or pattern to it. I'm not sure about that pattern, but I know if you've got a camera crew following you around filming your acts of kindness, you definitely have a plan and a purpose behind them. You are planning to do them for the purpose of displaying them on your TV show. Now, I'm not suggesting that Oprah's acts of kindness weren't genuine. They just weren't random. And I'm not altogether certain either that they could even be considered acts of kindness, at least in the way that Paul is talking about when he mentions kindness as being part of that fruit of the Spirit. Because the word that we translate into English as kindness comes from the Greek word kristates, which could also be translated as mercy, so you can think of kindness and mercy as being somewhat synonymous. Love, joy, peace, patience, mercy. But No one ever talks about doing random acts of mercy, do they? And if you stop and think about it, the concept of doing random acts of mercy is somewhat absurd, because we should always plan on doing acts of mercy anytime we have opportunity for the purpose of glorifying God. Now the opportunities themselves may appear at random in that they have no discernible pattern to them, but they should always have that plan and purpose behind them. And that brings us to this morning's text. This morning we wanna look at one of those episodes where Jesus had an opportunity to show mercy to someone, and we wanna see how he responded to that opportunity. Our text is found in Luke chapter 13. Hopefully you have your Bibles with you, so if you do, please turn there. And if not, you can grab one of the Bibles from underneath the chair in front of you and turn to page 728. And we will be reading verses 10 through 17 from Luke chapter 13. It says, On a Sabbath, Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues. And a woman was there who had been crippled by a spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not straighten up at all. When Jesus saw her, he called her forward and said to her, Woman, you are set free from your infirmity. Then he put his hands on her, and immediately she straightened up and praised God. Indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, the synagogue leader said to the people, There are six days for work, so come and be healed on those days, not on the Sabbath. The Lord answered him, You hypocrites, doesn't each of you on the Sabbath untie your ox or donkey from the stall and lead it out to give it water? Then should not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has kept bound for 18 long years, be set free on the Sabbath day from what bound her? When he said all this, when he said this, all his opponents were humiliated, but the people were delighted with all the wonderful things he was doing. Now, the first thing that Luke tells us here is that Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. Now, earlier in chapter four, Luke tells us that this was his normal custom. So if you had lived in the first century If Jesus was visiting your town and you wanted to find him, if it was the Sabbath day, you pretty well knew where to look for him. All you had to do was go down to your local synagogue and chances were pretty good you were going to find him there. And this is one of those occasions where Jesus was in the synagogue teaching on the Sabbath. And And it says that there was a woman there who had been crippled by a spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not straighten up at all. Now we're not exactly sure what this woman looked like, but you can kind of imagine she may have looked a little bit you know, like Quasimodo from the Hunchback of Notre Dame. She was bent over and could not straighten herself up. Now if any of you have ever experienced any kind of back problems or any kind of acute back pain, you probably can relate with this woman to some degree. You know a little bit about what she was going through. I know I can certainly relate. I've had back issues off and on myself for, well, about 18 years now. About the same same length of time as this woman. And a few years ago, my chiropractor told me that 8 out of 10 people experience acute back pain at least once in their life. The other two have absolutely no idea what it's like. And it's kind of ironic, I actually had a spell just a couple of weeks ago when I was study- while I was studying this text and preparing this message. You want to talk about an object lesson. I was getting out of the shower on a Tuesday, on a Tuesday morning, Groundhog Day. I don't recall seeing my shadow, but as I, was- as I was stepping out of the shower, I felt a sharp twinge in my back and it did not go away. Now being the tough guy that I am, I went ahead and pushed through the pain, went into work, which was probably not a good idea. As the day and the week progressed, the pain got worse and worse and worse, until by Friday, this was two weeks ago, I actually went into back spasms. And if you've never experienced back spasms, it's essentially a It's like a sudden, super intense muscle contraction in the back. Now the contraction may only last for a few seconds, but believe me, it is one of the most agonizing few seconds of your life. I'm sure there are some things that are more painful, but none that I have ever experienced. And when the back spasms, it buckles your knees. And if you aren't holding on to something or someone, or if someone isn't holding on to you, it's gonna be like dropping a sandbag. You're going straight down. With Twila's help, I got into the chiropractor and he started working on me to help me regain my range of motion. But by the time we got home, and this is no lie, if it hadn't been for Twila's help, I never would have gotten back into the house. By the time we got back into the house, my legs were doing this. It was all I could do to stand up. The uh, spasms didn't completely subside until the next morning and the chiropractor told me that I was this close to total lockdown. It's where the back completely seizes up and at that point about the only thing they can do is put you on a stretcher take you to the hospital and shoot you with to to unlock the back so that then they can start working on you. So I can relate somewhat to what this woman was going through because I was bent over and could not straighten up. Now Luke says that when Jesus saw her, he called her forward and he healed her. Now there is no indication in the text that this woman came there to be healed and she didn't ask to be healed. Jesus simply saw her. He saw an opportunity he called her forward, laid his hands on her, told her, woman, you are set free from your infirmity, and, sh- and she was healed. And look at what she does next. She straightened up, and she did what? She praised God. So Jesus planned on doing an act of mercy for this woman for the purpose of glorifying God. Notice the woman did not suddenly turn to Jesus and start telling him how great he was, although he was, but she gave the praise and the glory to God. Now look at what happens next. Now, I have to admit, I have somewhat of a dry and sometimes twisted sense of humor. I have a tendency to see humor in things that other people might miss and in some cases where the humor may not even be intended, I see a little twist of irony here. You have a woman who is bent over Jesus heals her and straightens her up. Next thing you know, the synagogue leader is all bent out of shape, and Jesus has to straighten him out, right? (laughs) Little little twist of irony there. And why is he bent out of shape? Well, Luke says says that he is indignant because Jesus has healed on the Sabbath. Now, this was not the first time that Jesus had run, into, that had, had run afoul of the Pharisees for healing on the Sabbath. There was an earlier incident recorded in Luke chapter 6 where on another occasion Jesus was teaching in the synagogue and there was a man there with a withered hand. Now, the Pharisees were watching him, that is, they were watching Jesus, to see if he would heal the man so that they could find a reason to accuse him of breaking the law. Jesus knew what they were thinking, and so he asked, which is lawful, to do good on the Sabbath or to do evil, to save a life or to destroy it? Because that, in effect, is pretty much what they were doing. They were plotting how they might get rid of Jesus, and they were doing their plotting on the Sabbath, no less. But Jesus called the man forward, told him to stretch out his hand. The man did, and his hand was made whole. There was also a later occasion in the next chapter over from our text where Jesus, yet again, was teaching in a synagogue on the Sabbath and there was a man there with dropsy, which is simply an abnormal swelling of the body caused by an accumulation of fluid in the tissues. This time Jesus asked the Pharisees if it was lawful to heal on the Sabbath, but they wouldn't answer him. It's almost like they were kind of quietly defying him you know, why don't you tell us? Jesus Jesus didn't even wait for an answer. He went ahead and healed the man. If they had had a three-strike rule, Jesus definitely would have been out because he clearly was a habitual offender. And the Pharisees weren't too happy. Now, this still all this still begs the question, though, exactly what was it about him healing on the Sabbath? that caused these guys to get their underwear in a bunch. Well, Mosaic Law had established the seventh day of the week as a holy day. In Exodus chapter 20, when the Ten Commandments were given to Moses on Mount Sinai, the fourth commandment said this, Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So, the seventh day of the week, the Sabbath, had been set aside as a day of rest. And no work was to be done on that day. This is a law that was stringently enforced. And violating it was a capital offense punishable by death. There was an incident in Numbers chapter 15 where a man was caught gathering sticks on the Sabbath... They took him outside the camp and they stoned him to death. Now, over the years, the experts in the Old Testament law had debated the nature of work and they had developed numerous rules and regulations that restricted Sabbath activity. The Talmud rule enumerated 39 principal classes of prohibited actions and each class of actions was later debated and discussed and and further elaborated until they had literally several hundred different rules and regulations regulating what a conscientious, law-abiding Jew could and could not do on the Sabbath. Now, I'll give you some of the more ridiculous examples. For example, you could spit on a rock, but not on loose soil. Because if you spit on loose soil and caused it to move... That was considered plowing. That was considered work. I know, it'd be a rough way to plow your field, wouldn't it? <laughs> Another example, they also, they also had limits on how far you could travel on the Sabbath day. Because in those days, most people traveled by, by walking Few people could, even, could afford to own a horse, so they had put limits on how far you could walk from home on the Sabbath day, what was known as a Sabbath day's journey or a Sabbath day's walk. And it was equivalent to 2,000 cubits or about 3,000 feet, a little over a half a mile, but they had a loophole. When you reached the limit of a Sabbath day's walk, if you left a piece of food or a personal belonging in that spot, you could then designate that location as a temporary residence, which would then allow you to walk an equal distance further. I swear I'm not making these up. But now here's the most ridiculous one of all. They equated healing with work, and therefore ruled that it was not lawful to heal on the Sabbath day. Because if you did, you were considered to be working on the Sabbath. And sadly, there were no loopholes in that law. Now, in today's terminology, we would call this legalism. Where the life of faith essentially becomes a life life of works. Where it's pretty much reduced to just a rigid code of rules and regulations of do's and don'ts. Jesus had another word for it. He labeled it as hypocrisy. Because what did he say to the synagogue leader? You hypocrites. Now Jesus clearly had not read Dale Carnegie's book, How to Win Friends and Influence People. (laughs) Carnegie never would have advocated just point blank calling someone a hypocrite. But I don't think Jesus was too terribly concerned about winning friends and influence people influencing people. I've, you have to love his direct approach. And he cut right to the chase. And he says, doesn't each of you on the Sabbath untie your ox or donkey from the stall and lead it out to water? Lead it out to give it water? You see, well-established rabbinical rulings had authorized helping someone's trapped animal on the Sabbath. Is an animal of any less value to God than a human being. Jesus didn't think so. Notice what He says about this woman. He says, "Ought not this daughter of a says, not this daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has kept bound for eighteen long years, be freed on the Sabbath from what bound her? Be set free on the Sabbath day from what bound her?'" You may notice that he refers to her as a daughter of Abraham, indicating that she was Jewish. Now, what is the significance of this? Did being Jewish make her any more or less valuable than anyone else? No, and that is not what Jesus is implying here. What he is doing is highlighting the disparity between what they professed on one hand and what they actually practiced on the other Because in the Jewish mind, they believed that because they were descendants of Abraham, they were the chosen ones. They were special to God, and therefore they were more valuable than anyone else. Yet this woman, even though she was Jewish, did not even rate with an animal. That's how bad their hypocrisy was. The Pharisees had essentially reduced the Sabbath day to be to an end in and of itself. To be governed by a rigid code of rules and regulations. They equated healing with work and therefore ruled that it was not lawful to heal on the Sabbath. But Jesus didn't view the Sabbath as an end in and of itself. He said the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So Jesus freed the Sabbath from all the Pharisees' rules and regulations. He equated healing not with work, but as an act of mercy, and therefore he healed on the Sabbath. Now this conflict between Jesus and the synagogue leader wasn't just about the Sabbath. It was actually part of an even bigger conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees over their respective interpretations of the law and of scripture in general. The Pharisees, the Sabbath was merely a microcosm of the law, which in turn was a microcosm of all of scripture. You see, the, the synagogue leader's real problem was not his fidelity to the law, but his interpretation of the law. His fidelity to the law actually would have been commendable had it not, had his interpretation of the law not been so devoid of compassion for this poor woman whom Satan had kept bound for 18 years. But therein lies the rub. You see, the Pharisees had complicated the law. They had made it even more complicated than it already was by adding mounds upon mounds of rules and regulations to it, which no one could keep. But Jesus did the exact opposite. He actually simplified the law by summing up all of scripture into just two commandments. He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. The Pharisees somehow had missed this second one. They probably missed the first one as well because John says, how can a man love God whom he has not seen if he doesn't love his brother whom he has seen. The Pharisees, the Pharisees had definitely missed this second one. Because their interpretation of Scripture prevented them from showing mercy to someone in need. And that is one of the telltale signs that someone has misinterpreted Scripture. When one's interpretation of Scripture per- leaves no room for showing mercy to someone in need. That is the crux of our text this morning, and that, is, that brings us to the main point of the passage, what we would call the big idea. The big idea is simply this. If your interpretation of Scripture hinders you from showing mercy to someone in need, then you have not correctly understood what the Bible teaches. I'm going to say that again because this is vitally important. And I want you to get this. If your interpretation of Scripture hinders you from showing mercy to someone in need, then you have not correctly understood what the Bible teaches. Now, some of us might be thinking, well, okay, of course my interpretation of Scripture is correct. I show mercy. But what about those times when we may overlook an opportunity. I'll give you some illustrations here. Before Twyla and I got married, I lived in Florida, and the church that I attended there was Orange Avenue Baptist Church in Fort Pierce, Florida. The pastor of the church, David Hart, related an incident that had occurred earlier in his ministry at a church that he was pastoring in Missouri. They had a Sunday evening service, and at the end of the service, they had an altar call, and during the altar call, a woman came to the front with tears streaming down her face, and she confessed that she had been having an adulterous relationship. Now, she understood, you know, because of the nature of what she had done, that some form of church discipline was going to be in order, and she was willing to accept that, but she had since ended the relationship had ended the affair had repented of what she had done and was seeking forgiveness and she wanted to know if she could remain in the fellowship of the church now pastor hart you know recognizing the seriousness of of what had what she had done he recognized also that some form of church discipline you know was necessary and he told her that she was going to have to give up teaching her Sunday school class as well as her positions on any of the church committees that she was on. But he also recognized that this woman was broken by her sin and had repented of it, and he wanted to extend mercy to her, and he told her, yes, she could remain in the fellowship of the church. Now, there were some in the church who weren't quite as gracious. They felt that the church should have kicked her to the curb but because they didn't, a couple, if not several of the families, ended up leaving the church. A couple of years later, one of those families had a marriage end in divorce because of, you guessed it, adultery. And there was one or two other families who had, a teenage, who had teenage daughters giving birth out of wedlock. Sometimes our own lack of mercy can come back to bite us. There was an incident in the mid-1990s when the gospel singer, Michael English, had been caught in an, also in an adulterous affair and was drummed out of gospel music. A few years later, gospel music icon, Bill Gaither, invited Michael English to Alexandria, Indiana, Gaither's hometown, for one, for, the, for one of their homecoming gatherings. Gaither relates in his autobiography. It's more than the music. There are some people who regarded him and his wife Gloria as being soft on sin because of their unwillingness to give up on people. But Gaither points out in, in the book, he says, I know who I am, a sinner saved by grace. He and Gloria refused to give up on Michael English. And when English showed up for the, for the homecoming taping, Gaither says everyone there loved him. And while no one condoned the misconduct that had led to his demise, everyone there was rooting for him to, to rebuild his life. Sometimes we forget that the overarching narrative of scripture and one of the essential points of the gospel is God's mercy toward us, toward sinful humanity, which was shown most clearly and fully in the giving of his beloved son to die in our stead. The Lord himself, his mercy enabled him to willingly make the awful sacrifice for us. So what can we learn from this? First of all, we need to realize that mercy is the compassion that causes one to help the weak, the sick, and the poor. Let's not forget, it's one of the fruit of the Spirit that Paul mentions in Galatians, made up in part of love, long-suffering, kindness, gentleness, and goodness. And showing mercy is one of the cardinal virtues of a true follower of Jesus Christ, as James points out. In James chapter 2. Does this passage communicate a rebuke to be heard and heeded? Well, one of the rebukes we might uncover is our own personal failure to show mercy to someone in need. And this could be due to any number of things. It might be simply due to oversight. could be our own, the hardness of our own hearts or our own misreading of scripture. If any of these is the case in our own walk with Jesus, then we need then the rebuke needs to be heeded and our actions and possibly even our attitudes need to change. Is there a correction to be heard? If our interpretation of scripture hinder, hinders us from showing mercy to someone in need, we need to re-examine our interpretation to see where we've gone wrong. It's possible that we've overlooked something in the text or maybe we've even added something to the text that wasn't even there also possible that we failed to correlate it with another part of Scripture that explains its teachings even more fully. And in what way does this passage train us to be righteous? Well, as I stated earlier, if part of the fruit of the Spirit and one of the cardinal virtues of the Christian life is mercy, then as I've also stated earlier, those acts of mercy should never be done at random. We should always plan on doing them. We should always plan on doing them for the purpose of glorifying God. Now, what do we need to change here? First of all, if our failure to show mercy is due to oversight, then we need to be on the lookout for people in need. Luke says when Jesus saw the woman, he called her to himself and he healed her. He never would have seen her if he hadn't been on the lookout. We need the Holy Spirit to help us to be on the lookout. If our failure to show mercy is due to our misinterpretation of Scripture, then as I've already alluded to, we need to re-examine our interpretation and take correct, corrective steps. But if our failure to show mercy is due to the hardness of our hearts, we might need a good old-fashioned attitude adjustment. Maybe that the great physician himself needs to do heart surgery on us. As Christians, we should always be merciful of the mercy that God has shown us and then extend that mercy to others. But here's the kicker we can't do this in our own power. And the good news is we don't have to because Christ has already done it on our behalf so that we, being filled with his presence, Can now go and do it the same way he did in the power of the Holy Spirit. One Peter two ten says, Once you were not a people, now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. I would like to point out here, Peter doesn't say, doesn't simply say that you have been shown mercy. We've certainly been shown mercy that is present, but there's more to it than that. He says, "You have received mercy. We have been shown mercy in that we have for- been forgiven of our sins and that they're no longer held against us, but we have already been get- but we have also received mercy in that mercy has been infused into us by the Holy Spirit. It has become. It now becomes part of our DNA, whereas it wasn't before. And now, because of that, we are the people of God. So the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, mercy. So let's go in the power of the Holy Spirit. And let's plan on doing acts of mercy every opportunity we get for the purpose of glorifying God. A few years ago, actually it's been more than a few now. There was a song called Try a Little Kindness. It was recorded by music artist Glenn Campbell. And although this I remember hearing it on Christian radio, although the song was not explicitly or overtly Christian, but the song highlights some of the virtues and some of the things that we've highlighted in the message this morning. And the song goes like this. If you see your brother standing by the road with a heavy load from the seeds he sowed, and if you see your sister falling by the way, just stop and say you're going the wrong way. You've got to try a little kindness. Yes, show a little kindness. Just shine your light for everyone to see. And if you try a little kindness, then you'll overlook the blindness of narrow-minded people on their narrow-minded street. Don't walk around the down and out. Lend a helping hand instead of doubt and the kindness that you show every day will help someone along life's way you've got to try a little kindness yes show a little kindness just shine your light for everyone to see and if you try a little kindness then you'll overlook the blindness of narrow-minded people on their narrow-minded street. Let's pray. Our gracious God, Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, Holy Spirit, come and fill us with your presence. Infuse us with your power so that we may walk as Jesus did. Fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, and mercy. So, Lord Jesus, even as you have shown mercy to us, we pray that you would infuse that mercy to us so that we, in turn, may be able to show it and extend it to others who are in need, even those who we may think don't deserve it, Lord, because we certainly did not deserve it from you. So, as we go forth, we pray that you would fill us with your Spirit, fill us with your mercy, and we pray that you would help us to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit to live out that life of mercy for your honor and for your glory. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.